Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Brian K. Roby, fellow at the Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He's here to talk to us about his new book, The Mizrahi Era of Rebellion, Israel's Forgotten Civil Rights Struggle, 1948 to 1966, published in 2015 by Syracuse University Press. Brian, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Great. So first off, could you just tell tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Uh, sure. So um, during my PhD, which uh, I received uh, from the University of Manchester, I um, was working on uh, Middle Eastern history in general, um, with a particular focus on Israel. And a lot of what I read in terms of the literature did talk about kind of the uh, discriminatory practice, practices um, against Mizrahi or Sephardic or Middle Eastern Jews. But um, the kind of conclusion was that during the 50s and 60s, there wasn't much of a kind of a protest or a fight against um, discrimination um, or against inequality. Um, and I sort of questioned it. I thought it was pretty strange, uh, particularly like with the kind of popularity of uh, the African-American civil rights movement. Um, and in my research, I looked a lot at um, police reports and newspapers from the time. And what I found was like this wealth of information that was available that kind of showed you like the uh, dynamics of um, Mizrahi protests, which included like sit-ins and hunger strikes. Um, and a lot of the influence was based on um, both kind of like um, the independence movements in the Arab world, but also like uh, Gandhi um People were also influenced by uh, King and other like African American civil rights leaders. So that's how I, how I kind of started um, in terms of that. Great. So can you give us a little bit of um, background about sort of the establishment of the State of Israel and who you know what basically the population makeup was and uh, sort of the short little history of, of migration. Um, during this period, and and then can you tell us a bit about um, your first chapter, which details the role of the Israel National Police um, during this period? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. So the um, kind of, of course, you know, uh, the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, um, and as a result of the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict, <clears throat> a lot of Jews um, from the Middle East, Africa, and Asia were um, either forced out or left because of um, persecution, um, uh, forced out of their countries of origin, and uh, migrated to the state of Israel. Um, Not everyone was Zionist. There were uh, lots of Zionists involved in this uh, from the Middle East. Um, And when they arrived, um, a good portion of them were from Iraq and from a middle or upper class background. Um, a lot of civil servants and well-educated people uh, spoke English and French. Um, and they were placed in these transit camps called Mabarot. 
Um, and in these transit camps, which are, they were only supposed to live in for a few months, they ended up living in uh, for sometimes six years, 10 years. Um, and they were often just 10 shacks, sometimes just canvas tents. Um, and so there was a lot of death and disease involved in that. Um, and a lot of feelings of just being kind of oppressed because uh, they came from a non-European background. Um, at the time, there was uh, the um, the kind of state elite were mostly of European Jewish origin. Um, and so there was this kind of like, you know, uh, unequal balance between representation in, in, the, uh, in the Knesset or the parliament and the people who were living in the country. So within like five or six years or within 10 years, about... 600,000 uh, Jews from the Middle East uh, had migrated to, this, uh, to the state. Um, and so uh, just to get into my first chapter, what I, what I did in that, I talked a lot about the Israel police because this was kind of the basis of my research um, kind of methods. Um, and I looked at police reports and also the police uh, kind of annual reports, which talked about the guiding principles. And what I found was that uh, there was a concerted effort on the part of the Israel police to recruit uh, Mizrahi Jews. Um, and the purpose of that was that they assumed that if Mizrahi Jews were uh, kind of um, recruited into the police, they would become better integrated in society and also civilized to a certain extent. So there was this assumption that uh, they all came from backwards countries and didn't know how uh, to read or write and things like that. Um, and so if they, were, if they would engage uh, with the police, who were mostly Ashkenazi Jews at the time, uh, then they would learn like the kind of civil civilized way to behave. Um, and so that's kind of the crux of the first, uh, first chapter. And I talk a little bit about parallels between, uh, this project and also the, this project of civilization, uh, civilizing and, uh, that of, um, uh, the American police force, which also had like kind of a, a similar goal in mind in terms of, uh, blacks and Irish, um, trying to integrate them into society through the police. Right. So tell us a bit about uh, what you call the foundations of the Mizrahi civil rights struggle in the first decade of um, Israel's existence. And what can you tell us about any attempts at solidarity between Mizrahi and uh, Palestinian activists? Sure. Um, so uh, in the second chapter, when I talk about the foundations of this movement uh, or the struggle, um, I look at... Um, a couple of intellectuals, Abraham Abbas and uh, Eliyahu Eliashar, um, the first of which, uh, Abraham Abbas was the Iraqi-born uh, member of the of Knesset, and Eliyahu Shar was born in, uh, in Mandate, Palestine, and was a lawyer and a kind of a rights activist at the time. Um, and I view this as the foundations of the struggle, mostly because um, a lot of what they were arguing with, they were, they were saying there is discrimination and it needs to be stopped before it gets worse. Um, and part of that uh, kind of intellectual, uh, you know, engagement with the with Knesset and also other different politicians was uh, would form the basis of protests. So people would, uh, you know, have these protests either outside of the Sahnud, which is the Jewish agency, um, or... Uh, in one incident in front of the Knesset. Um, and afterwards, uh, Elias Shah would write articles saying that, you know, this is, uh, this is another example of kind of discrimination that's taking place, uh, against, um, Israeli, uh, immigrants at the time. Um, you also have an Indian intellectual who would uh, write to the Jerusalem post, 
um, talking about this idea of the melting pot. So the melting pot in Israel was this, uh, just like in America, uh, was this idea that um, every immigrant would need to uh, kind of uh, assimilate themselves into uh, idealized uh, Western Israel, uh, westernized uh, Israeli culture. Um, and um, A.I. Mahmoud is his name, uh, the Indian intellectual. So he wrote that um, it's a great idea, but that needs to include the integration of, you know, uh, uh, Asian and Arab culture as well, because this is also part of our roots as Jews, that we are rooted very much within the Middle East and Asia. Um, in terms of solidarity efforts with Palestinians, um, I did find um, some instances, mostly through the Communist Party, uh, of which um, a lot of Iraqi Jews took, play, uh, took part in. Um, Whereas they would try to, you know, have protests um, alongside Palestinians who were then living in uh, under military rule. So I'm talking about c- civilians, not those that were uh, living in Jordan or uh, Lebanon at the time. Um, and they would have these protests saying that, you know, there needs to be an end to the military rule. And just like uh, we live in these Mabarot or transit camps, they live in these kind of closed quarters and are segregated from society uh, and kind of like, you know, closed in from and not being able to kind of fulfill their goals. Um, a lot of the other solidarity efforts were done within uh, journals, which I looked at. Um, so a lot of uh, Mizrahi Jews would um, write in Arabic journals um, that were published um, by the socialist parties or by the communist party. Um, and they were like, they were right alongside uh, Palestinian poets and political activists and things like that. Um, kind of demonstrating their, you know, strong affinities with the Arab world in a sense. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the transit camps that you talked about and, and what sort of tactics were employed, uh, tactics of resistance were employed within these transit camps. Um, one of the kind of fascinating uh, tactics, tactics that I found were there were a lot of uh, women and children who were involved in protests. So, um, And we're talking about teenagers here. Um, so they would um, stage these protests within the uh, Mabarot and they would have like signs or Sometimes they uh, take a bottle of drinking water and that was like, you know, uh, dirty color, you know, colored uh, with all kinds of contaminants and things like that. And, and, you know, scream to the police or chant that, you know, this is the water that we drink. These are the tents that we live in. You know, see how you're treating us. Um, in one case, there was a, a commission uh, form within the Mabara uh, in Pardis Khana where um, they have a manifesto that they wrote um, and they delivered to the police and also to um uh, some politicians where they um, outlined, you know, the kind of deprivation that they suffered from. So they would mention the fact that, um, you know, when there was um, someone who passed away, um, they wouldn't have rights to proper burial. They would have to wait days for um, someone to arrive. And sometimes the dead will be transported in uh, garbage trucks and things like that. Uh, women were not able to um, give birth in a hospital. They would either have to walk um while in labor to uh, miles in order to get to the nearest hospital, or they would just have to, you know, do it on their own. Um, so you see a lot of kind of uh, engagement in these, in these particular protests in the Mabarot uh, with the police, um, as, uh, as the police would say, you know, they're the most visible manifestation of the state in a sense, because they're, they're dealing on a daily basis, one-on-one with the public, um, and um, there will be a lot of violent clashes with the police, um, in particular, if uh, they felt as if the camp directors, who were mostly uh, European Jews or Ashkenazim, uh, if they felt that the camp directors would 
um, be uh, we're kind of denying them rights, our basic rights. Um, so I think that I hope that answers your question in some way. Yeah, and and what was the tactic? And were the tactics different in in the urban spaces that you talk about? And you also mentioned that there was both violent and non-violent tactics employed. Um, tell us a bit about this. Uh, correct. Yeah. So um, I would say the main difference uh, between the uh, Mabara protests and the ones that took place in urban spaces were that they were much more well organized um, and they were much more dynamic and they had uh, different types of strategies. So whereas uh, the ones in the Mabara world would have traditional types of protests, you would think, you know, people marching and kind of, you know, holding up signs and things like that. Um, the ones in urban spaces would often directly um, would go directly to a government building, sometimes even occupying a government building and conducting a sit-in and saying that, you know, um, in one particular case, uh, which I uh, kind of called the Beresheva Rebellion, there was a group of uh, Indian and Pakistani Jews who went to the Jewish agency and demanded to be sent back to India and Pakistan um, because um, of the racism that they faced. Um, and they detailed it and uh, to a certain extent, um, a lot of them were successful. Uh, I think about 115 were flown back to Bombay, um, but the rest were not allowed to leave. Um, and so this protest actually went on for 10 years, but it's just kind of like dem- demonstrative of like the differences uh, between the kind of Mabara protests and the, uh, the, urban, the urban ones. Um, you asked an- another question. I can't remember. Oh, about the um, violence and nonviolent tactics. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah. So the the more violent uh, tactics would often occur um, as a result of police intervention. Um, a lot of times, the, they were like um, uh, people would hold like um, kind of peaceful protest, and they would have like democratic votes about you know who should go in to represent them uh, to the municipality or to the government. Um, and then the police would come and they would often antagonize the protester protesters. Um, and as a result of that, you know, there'd be clashes, people would get into arguments and then things would get out of hand. Um, so by out of hand, I mean, they would start, you know, raiding buildings or, um, you know, sometimes attacking the police. Um, the police would, um, often attack them as well. Um, dragging women and uh, kicking people and things like that. Um, so what I found was that a lot of times that, you know, when the police were not involved, you know, these would continue to be uh, nonviolent protests. And one thing I do want to point out is that in terms of the uh, difference uh, between the Marlboro protests and the urban ones were that um, people did not have access to, Mizrahim immigrants didn't have access to cars and things like that. Um, and they were often in very peripheral areas. So if they wanted to protest against the government or, or the Jewish agency, they would have to walk um, a lot of times from miles um, to Tel Aviv in order to do this. And so that added to the frustration, um, and especially like, you know, once they got there, they realized that, you know, the government was not willing to hear, you know, their pleas. Um, they would get very angry. Um, Tell us, uh, what was the Wadi Salib rebellion? And um, also, what was the sort of its ongoing impact Sure. So um, I'll start with its impact. Uh, the Wadi Salib uh, rebellion is very important in Israeli history. So um, it's considered the first um, historiography um, uh, of the Mizrahi protest. Um, so in 1959, a uh, Moroccan man was um, 
drunk at a cafe and the police were called. And while they said they wanted to just fire a warning shot, they actually shot the man. And a lot of people mistakenly believed that he was killed at the time, uh, but he was actually just taken to a hospital. And so following this, um, some some local uh, activists organized a protest that um, kind of sparked this major uh, rebellion throughout the entire country. Um, So it first started off in Haifa, in Wadi Salib neighborhood. Um, And then um, once they protested in front of the police station and they were brutally kind of like, you know, oppressed in a sense uh, and that they were attacked by the police, um, then people heard of this and then started, you know, staging protests in Beersheba and Jerusalem and Kriyat Malachi and other different uh, towns and cities where there was a large uh, Mizrahi presence. Um, and so this is kind of marked as the pivotal point which in, uh, within which, uh, you know, Mizrahim kind of, you know, um, protested against the government. And what I kind of showed was that, uh, yes, it was a very important moment, but uh, these protests, the, uh, the Wadi Salih rebellion was just the kind of culmination of like a decades long struggle um, for equality within the country. Um, and as a result of this, I would say, I guess this is well, somewhat of the most uh, successful in that it forced the government at the time to kind of come to terms with the fact that there there is racism within the country. Uh, so a commission was formed called the Etzioni Commission, uh, named after the judge, where it investigated, well, is there discrimination or not within uh, Israeli society against Mizrahi immigrants or Mizrahi Jews? Um and they took testimony from uh, people who were involved in the protests, people who led the protests, rabbis uh, who were involved. Um, and the government found that, uh, no, there's not really discrimination. But if there is, then it's only really a few uh, transit, transit camp clerks or like a few different like uh, secretaries that were involved in, you know, kind of denying people access to food or denying people access to good jobs or, you know, trying to relocate to a better a city or a better, you know, better neighborhood. And so what I do want to point out just to go back a little bit is that in terms of its significance is that, you know, this occurred in 1959 and there's two markers in terms of Mizrahi protests um, previously for uh, Israeli historians is that uh, the Wadi Salih rebellion in 59 and then uh, in 1971, there's the kind of emergence of the Black Panthers movement um, where a group of uh, um young Jerusalemites, mostly from Morocco and uh, Kurdistan, they uh, formed a group and they called it the Black Panthers after the American Black Panthers. Um, and they kind of, these are the kind of the two points that were only really shown to be, you know, substantial Mizrahi protests, uh, which I challenged in a sense. Can you tell us a bit about the, your overall conclusions that you draw um, from your study? And, and you've already mentioned it a bit, but yeah, perhaps how it fits in with... Um, the historiography um, around um, this issue. Right. Um, so my kind of conclusions um, were one, of course, you know, that um, the protests, which were often just kind of like um, referred to as like simple bread and work protests, because that was a common slogan at the time. Uh, they were a bit more than that. They were a lot more dynamic and they were based on a kind of intellectual and political activism that was occurring at the time. Um, and that the Wadi Salib rebellion, in a sense, was not ju- was not the only protest. It was just a culmination of events that you know took place. Um, some other conclusions that I found was that uh, based on what um, what you see from the Arabic sources, from Mizrahi Jews, uh, and from also also from French and English sources, 
is that um, there's a lot of kind of parallels drawn between the black struggle in America and the Mizrahi struggle in Israel. Um, so in particular, Eliyahu Shah would write a lot about like, you know, what's going on or what was going on in America and how that relates to what was going on in Israel at the time. Um, and he pointed to the Watts Rebellion. So this is a little bit later on in the 60s where um, he points out that, you know, L.A. just had this major, uh, these major riots because of racism in, in the United States. And he notes that um, if discrimination continues uh, within Israel, we're going to have a similar uh, kind of uh, riot that will take place and that will, you know, spark a major flame within people's hearts. Um, and this actually did uh, take place. Um, you can read about it a little bit more uh, within my book. Um, so kind of the overall gist of it was, you know, kind of looking at these parallels um, uh, between the black struggle or kind of like showing that, you know, um, the Mizrahi protests at the time were very, you know, strong and they were intellectually motivated um, and that, you know, they, there was a lot of parallels between the African-American struggle and uh, the Israeli struggle for equality. Okay. Hmm. Well, um, thanks very much for talking to to us about um, this really um, interesting and important book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? Yeah, sure. Um, so while I'm at the Frankel Center here at the University of Michigan, um, I'm working on a project that looks more explicitly at this uh, kind of uh, African-American and Mizrahi parallels between the two uh, and their history. Um, so I'm looking mostly at the um, 60s and 70s, um, and one kind of article that uh, I'm working on is um, is looking at uh, black perspectives on the Mizrahi struggle. You know, did African-Americans who were involved in the civil rights movement at the time, did they look at Israel and say that, oh, yeah, we see that, you know, what's going on there is very similar to us. And what I found is, uh, you know, yes, they did. Um, most famously, uh, Martin Luther King was kind of involved in um, he was invited on numerous uh, visits to go to Israel. Um, he never went, but. Um, from the sources that I found, um, he did have a lot of kind of like discussions with Israeli diplomats, uh, mostly from the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, talking about, you know, um, what, uh, blacks can learn from the experience of Mizrahim in Israel. Um, and you see like Israeli politicians giving them suggestions and things like that about, you know, how to go about it, particularly, uh, talking about, you know, the, the supposedly successful, um, integration of Mizrahim into Israeli society through uh, the use of the army, army recruitment, police recruitment, um, and also like uh, kind of major um, educational programs, particularly the Head Start program, uh, which was started um, later on in the 70s. Uh, that was something that uh, was lauded as a great idea that um, blacks received from the Israeli uh, state. Um, and so then uh, other projects that I'm working on in relation to that is kind of like looking at um, these parallels between the two groups, uh, mostly within the idea, uh, within the framework of, of migration. Um, so at the same time that, um, you know, you have this mass migration from the Middle East of Jews to Israel, um, you have uh, a migration of blacks from the South, um, of America, uh, going to Northern cities. Um, and what I see is that, um, there's a lot of kind of uh, discourse surrounding the promised land or the holy land. So you have blacks who were referred to the North, you know, as the promised land. Uh, and of course you have this, uh, you know, very long history of, you know, uh, the land of Israel being the holy land for Jews. And 
there's the same kind of react, the similar reaction on both parties. Um, whereas they get to, you know, the, the, the Holy land and they're very disappointed, um, because they think that they're escaping this kind of, you know, discrimination and persecution in their, in their countries or regions of origin, only to find that they're facing the same, uh, discrimination in the Holy land, but of a different type. Um, and so there's uh, one Iraqi writer, uh, Maneshe uh, Zarur, who wrote explicitly about this. And he said that, you know, um, you know, us Iraqi Jews, we came from, uh, you know, Iraq in order to flee the kind of oppression that was taking place there, only to find out that, you know, we have this dual kind of oppression, both from uh, the Iraqi state and the Israeli state, because now that we're in Israel, we're being treated as Middle Easterners, uh, we're being treated badly because of that kind of uh, label. Well, they sound like um, really interesting projects. So we hope to have you um, back on the show to uh, discuss further in the future. Thank you. Great. All right. Well, thanks very much for uh, being on the show today with us. Um, You've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies uh, with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, Today with us, we had Brian K. Roby, um, fellow at the Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He talked to us about his new book, The Mizrahi Era of Rebellion, Israel's Forgotten Civil Rights Struggle, 1948 to 1966. It was published in 2015 by Syracuse University Press. Thanks very much.